0: Welcome to Discipleship Training. We're going to continue on with last week's topic, Who's in Charge? God's Rule and the Relationship of Church and State. Last week we mostly focused on uh, God's rule and how does He delegate His rule in the world to uh, individuals the uh, in their conscience, through family, through the workplace, through uh, the The state or civil government and the the church we considered those things so that we could you know have a, a sharper biblical understanding of those things so that we could you know one have a biblical worldview and two be able to you know discern things that are going on in the world and uh, come up with a, a, a faithful way to live out those things in various circumstances today we're going to focus a little bit more on Uh, church and state, you know, defining a little bit more, you know, what is the state, what is the church, and looking at uh, kind of the three major categories that people have understood that relationship throughout history. And there's three, you know, broad views that people have had on uh, church and state throughout history. Uh, one one of them is that they're they're in union. You think about uh, the the theory of the two swords that the Roman Catholic Church has. That you know the church has a sword, the state has a sword, but you know who's really in charge of who is really kind of the debate and the battle there. And we can talk about some other examples of that. I wrote that teeny tiny. So. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you should move up, yeah. Uh, the other one would be that they're just totally separate. You know, this would be like, so it's, you know, a lot of the Anabaptists, you know, during the 16th century that saw themselves as, you know, totally distinct from the government. And, in fact, they, they were the ones who were supposed to be in informing people on how they were to live every detail of their lives and the third view would be that there's both separation and relationship, which I think is the biblical view, and it's the view that you know Jesus gave in Mark twelve when he says you know give to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is god's so you see there's a, there's a separation between those. Two realms, but there's also a relationship that they have to one another, and that you have to both of them as well to think through. Now, going back through these categories again, here with this uh, idea of union, uh, people in this group are they're looking for one guy to rule both realms, you know. And I gave the Roman Catholic example where. You, you know, the battle was, well, is the king of England the one who's in charge of the church? Or is it the, the pope who's in charge of the king? You know, they're battling over that. You know, who's subservient to who? Uh, you know, we, they're in union together, but who wears the pants in the union? And, you know, they weren't so much thinking through categories of like who has the sword and who has the keys like we had talked about last week they saw you know there's two swords there's not sword and keys they're not distinct but there's this union uh, you also saw this in history under a ruler named Constantine in the Roman Empire when he, he declared the nation to be a Christian nation part of what's confusing about that is well nations can't become christians you know only, only people can become christians but You see that there was this union of state and church that was enforced in that. Uh, Can you guys think of any modern day examples of people having a view of this union between the, the church and state working together to rule over everybody? Islam, yeah, that would be an example. It would fall under this category. yeah uh you know a newcomer that's an old comer on the stage would be christian nationalism you know maybe you've heard that term they're seeing this union between church and state but you know but the state shouldn't be bossing us around the the church should be st- telling the state what to do and they should be uh, coercing everybody to some sort of cultural christianity uh they want they desire to have a christian prince you know in their own words or they th- they call it also a a theocratic Caesarism, which when I mean, you start to hear that, it's like you you know, you want you know one charismatic political religious guy who's running everything on the planet. You know who does that sound like the Antichrist? Yeah, yeah. That, that's that was the conclusion I came to. It's like this this stuff sounds like pretty icky and disturbing. Uh. In a way, you, you might remember going back through and studying critical theory and stuff a few years back and the idea of the, there's this worldview where there's the oppressors and the oppressed and it's this big power struggle to see who can be on top and control everything. And the, basically, you know, the salvation's brought to the world through political activism, but you have to be the most powerful, influential political activist. Uh, that's essentially what Christian nationalists are, you know, and they're kind of like fighting fire with fire. They're fighting critical theory with critical theory. You know, they're uh, denouncing it while living it out. You know, they're saying it's wrong, but it's exactly what they're doing. Uh, I, I think another group that you, you might be able to put under this category that would hem and haw about it <laughs> is the, the theonomists, the reconstructionist. Uh, some some people who are persuaded towards some sort of postmillennial eschatology, because they're uh, they're seeing the the gospel primarily in terms of nations and uh, society. And so maybe if you've never heard those terms before, you you've probably thought of them under the category of uh, social gospel in the past. You know, it's uh, they're politically charged movements that want to see some sort of you know law that's enforced that'll bring about uh, righteousness in the land, but they're putting their hope in law and government ultimately. Uh, You know, a way that, you know, some of these uh, theonomist reconstructionists, you know, might put this. They say, well, the, the church ultimately is the one who establishes the kingdom of God on the planet by influencing the government to enforce the law of God, to bring about a cultural Christianity. And then once that happens, Jesus will return after the church has done the work of building his kingdom for him, which, you know, I personally, I would criticize that as sort of like a works-based salvation on the behalf of others. You know, you think on, by, you know, the works of our righteousness, some sort of salvation will be brought to uh, society. And again, like I mentioned, if you, if you uh, said this to anybody convinced of this, they, they would him and haw about it. It's like, we don't believe that, you know, we... We denounce those things, but let's go to the government and tell them how they should inform everybody else to be living on the planet, you know. So I think the error shows up not in how they express their thinking, but in their application ultimately, which is uh, an important thing to, you know, to to think through and discern when you're thinking through these things. There's, you know, there's what they're saying, and then there's what they're doing. And does their application match a truly biblical theology, Uh, movements of people totally separate uh, from the state you know I mentioned Anabaptist you might think you know Iowa Hill or something like that that's this section that people live out way out there if you ever drove through there uh, maybe you understand what I mean (laughs) (laughs) don't drive fast you'll hit the dog that's not used to seeing cars move yeah I, I was driving through there once I'm looking at all these like old rusting out cars and people's yards and this dog just stopped right in the middle of the road and wouldn't move and the kids are like why won't that dog move and I said that dog's not used to seeing these things move down the road. <laughs> yeah so you know it'd be movements that just see themselves as totally separate from the state you know they're usually obscure extremist sort of groups but what, what are they failing to to recognize ultimately you think when they don't. They don't see themselves as being under any sort of human government. Yeah, yeah. They failing to recognize God's you know established government. You know, government was God's idea, and it's it's a good gift that He has given us for our protection. They have the role of protecting everything that be fruitful and multiplies entails that we talked about last week. And what I I think is the biblical view is, you know, the third one there. There's some degree of separation and relationship between state and church. You know, we're trying to understand, well, there's distinctions between the two institutions, but they also have uh, unique purposes. But they also have to relate to one another. And when you live in a world where you have both of those, you have to figure out how you're relating to each as well. You know, how, how do you... Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, you know, which, what things are his? Well, if you have a, a coin with his image on it, then you, you have to give it back to him. You, you pay your taxes. But it's like, well, you also have things that belong to God, which his image is not on the coin, it's on you. You know, your, your life belongs to him. Your worship belongs to him. You're, and you're not to confuse those two which is, you know, might, might sound simple, but it's, it, the application of that can be incredibly complex in, in life to figure out how to do that. Uh, some people have talked about this in terms of there being two kingdoms. You know, there's, uh, you know, man has his kingdom here on earth. You kind of hear that in scripture, of like kingdom of darkness, or you hear about Satan as the prince of the power of the air, or he's the ruler of this. Age, you know, and that being distinct from, you know, the the kingdom of God, which we talked about that a few weeks back. Which there's this reality in that, you know, both of these sort of realms are under God's universal reign. Like everything's under His kingdom reign, in a way. But under His kingdom reign, He's uh, ordained that there be these separate institutions where there's something that's, you know, ruled by Satan, by man that's at odds with God. And, you know, if you ever read a systematic theology, you'll come across in uh, like angelology, you'll come to Satan and there'll be this uh, subcategory on Satan's servant ministry. (laughs) You read that like, what? (laughs) That's a weird thing to put in a Christian book. You see, it's, it's, Satan is God's Satan, you know, he's God's servant and can only accomplish God's purposes. You know, maybe that's, you know, most clear in a book like Job, where you know, God is, you know, speaking to Satan and it was his idea to bring up Job and say, you know, have you considered this guy? And so it's like, you know, he, God has ordained that Satan can do some things, rule over certain things and... This world for a time. But when it comes to God's kingdom, you think about Jesus in John 18. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. So it's, it's a different kingdom. It's not of this world. It doesn't come from it or originate from it. It says, if my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be delivered over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. So he says, well, you know, why don't we engage sword with sword? In this instance, you know, why don't we just use the weapons they're using against us back against them? Well, my kingdom's not from here, you know. It doesn't move forward the same way that things do within this other realm. But you also read of, it, in the future, these two realms coming together, you state and church. This is in Revelation 11:15. It says, then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. You know, this is when, you know, Christ comes, the one who it's prophesied in Isaiah that the, the government will be on his shoulders. You know, that's something to, that's future coming, but he's going to be the one who ultimately subdues and has dominion over everything in this life. And takes it back and gives it as a gift to his people. So we live in the time and history where there's a tension between, you know, we don't see everything subject to Christ. So it's talked about in Hebrews. But, but we do see him and he is going to put everything in subjection to himself. And so we have to live in the tension and that requires uh, wisdom and Lots of biblical discernment. So, we're going to develop some of these ideas a little bit here and just start with talking about how the, the church is something different than human government and it has a different purpose. So, both of these institutions in scripture are described as servants of God. They're both ministers of God, but they have a distinct leadership. They have differing purposes, though they can overlap at times. So human governments, within that, the leadership is kings, emperors, governors, presidents, things like this. But the church is led by shepherd, overseer, pastor, elders who have a delegated authority by God and his word. Human government, is a, it's a common grace ministry. You know, everybody partakes From it to to some degree. It's a common grace ministry to to protect life, to protect your ability to be able to to work, to be able to have a family, things like this. Uh, But the church is a special grace ministry that's specific to the spiritual care of the redeemed, the, the people who are gathered together to exalt God, to edify the saints, and to evangelize the lost. Uh, Human government, as we've talked about, it's ruled by a sovereign God, but the way that he rules it, it's through providence, it's through how he's providing that things happen in the world. You know, he's the one who uh, causes nations to rise and fall. You know, that's all in God's providence, but it's also through conscience. You know, we had talked about this last week. in Romans 2, it says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law naturally do the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, and that they demonstrate the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness in their thoughts, alternately accusing or else defending them. So within human government, God sovereignly working out his rule through providence, through conscience, uh, some people use the term natural law to refer to these realities. And the idea is just the, These things are just built into creation. God's in charge of everything. He's written certain instruction on men's hearts. He's, uh, the, the only world that they can live in is where there's these categories of good and evil. But the tension is that you know, a man's conscience can be corrupt and he can have wrong ideas of good and evil but he has those nonetheless and he has a conscience. The church, you know, d- distinct from this, is it's, it's ruled by God, but it's ruled by the, the preaching of his word within the church. And I think about 1 Thessalonians 2.13 here, it says, and for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also is at work in you who believe. So this is how God's authority works in the church. It's, it's converted people. Uh, the, the church, when Scripture speaks of it, is it's, it's made up of a converted membership. It's not, the word of God isn't just something that's outside of them, it's inside of them. You know, it's at work in them and to be worked out of them, and you hear that and that. They accepted the word of God, which was also at work in those who believed. Human government is devoted to protecting human life, to maintaining social order by punishing evildoers and praising good doers. I guess that's how you would say that. Do-gooders. Evildoers and do-gooders. All right. And the the church is devoted to Christ. You know that's something that we want to remember. Especially, we're devoted to Christ. Like we're we're not devoted to maintaining social order. Uh, We're not you know devoted to punishing evildoers necessarily, but we're devoted to Christ, and that shows up in being devoted to prayer, to Scripture, to fellowship, to the one another commands, to the Lord's table, to baptism, to church discipline. You know, these are the things that the church is devoted to. And one servant, as we've talked about, is the sword bearer, and the, the other servant of, of God is the key holder. They're, they're distinct, but they live in the, the same world, but they have different roles, different purposes. You now, the, the there's the sword of physical protection and then there's the keys of spiritual protection, but they're not to be exchanged. So the, the church can't, you know, look to the state to, to try to get them to provide some sort of spirituality that they want to see enforced in the world. You know, the, the state has a ministry of coercion. You think they have the sword, uh, they have the guns, you know, they have the ability to, to shove you into a prison cell. Which is not what the church should be doing. You know, the, the church's uh, ministry is to compel them to come in. You know, you're not. This is where I, you know, I kind of joke about. You know, you don't give somebody an Indian burn and just tell, them, well, just say Jesus. You, know, you can't just like put them in a headlock and give them a noogie. And it's like you have to obey the law of God, or you're going to get another one of these. So the church isn't to take up the government's sword and the government's not to try to take up the church's keys by invading the church's teaching, their doctrine or their practice. Within the church, God's delegated authority is not, you know, civil officials but it's elders and that's why when it comes to, you know, issues like we've talked about with the government uh, response and stuff to COVID-19, you know, the, our, the question in our mind throughout all those things happening, you know, shouldn't have been, well, what does the government say is the wisest course? You know, as Christians, we're looking at, well, what, what do our elders say is, is the wisest course? Uh, specifically when it's coming to dealing with, you know, doctrine and practice ultimately, and we're going to talk about how some of that stuff gets complicated and how you, you know, think it through. Now, we know that in the nation in which we live, we have, we have a first amendment. Within that first amendment of the United States, it, it guarantees the free exercise of religion without interference of civil government. Now, you can think through going through a lot of the COVID things, people would look back and say, well, you people in the government, you have to do this because our, our, our First Amendment guarantees you know, the free exercise of religion. And that's true, but there's also you know, more to it in that God guarantees the free exercise of our religion. It's not a right that government gives you. Government doesn't give you the right to worship ever. You, you always have the right to worship, but it can have such consequences that you end up in the lion's den. But nobody can take that right of worship, they, but they might change the location in which you're doing the worship, right? So understanding these sort of, you know, these distinctives between human government and the church, it, it's going to help us to, to ask the right questions and guide us in coming up with, with a scriptural response, which brings us to thinking through this idea of civil disobedience as it's commonly talked about. Before, but before you can think about, you know, when, when should I or could I disobey uh, government, law, well, first you have to understand, well, what's the role, of, role and purpose of government? You know, what's the role and purpose of the, the local church that God has placed me within? And when we come to thinking through these sort of issues, we're going to look at this uh, just in a little bit of detail. I mean, you could go on and on in this topic forever and ever, but some, some books that would be helpful that I brought. One one of them is called City of Man, Kingdom of God. Why Christians respect, obey, and resist government. So, and it's only this big, which is, you know, another reason I recommend this, but it's a really clear book to just get down some basic ideas within that, written by Jesse Johnson, super helpful book. Uh, another one that some of you have probably already read is God versus government taking a biblical stand when Christ and compliance collide, which just has some things written by James Coates, who's a pastor who was in prison in Canada as he went through this. You know, also uh, have Nathan Busnitz, who was one of the pastors at Grace Community Church. You know, these are two things that were popular in the news that a lot of you uh, knew about. Really helpful reads and beyond that if there's you know other things that you're more specifically interested in reading on that topic you let me know I might be able to recommend some other books as well but these are my top two book recommendations I got them up here if you want to snap a photo or something or google it after the Sunday school lesson (laughs) no no no, they're not. They're bigger and nerdier. There's like, there's some really good stuff on like a Greco-Roman cultural background and stuff that kind of helps you to understand what was going on uh, in the background of the New Testament when it, Romans 13 was written in the such. And, uh, and there's one in particular that uh, offers some really helpful parallels of uh, like emperor worship and how that worked out in their culture and how it actually works out in uh, American culture with uh, certain people. I won't tell you too much because you won't read it because you're like, man, that's going to convict me real hard if I read that. And other thing, you know, different church-state relationships during the, the Reformation. You know, there's a history on that or even maybe something particular to, you know, those men who came across on the, the Mayflower to... Uh, Begin to settle America and you know the heroic thing that that was and the huge mess it was (laughs) and which it's helpful to read a history on that because some people just tell you well they all had this one view and they were all you know together working to do this one thing and you start to read about it and it's like you know I don't know if anybody agreed with anybody and they're all like killing each other over all sorts of stuff so well, there, there's uh, two, or, two or three of those. I, I, uh, I could look them up for you. I think I get the titles wrong if I try to say them off the top of my head. But <laughs> so what, what we're going to look at here in this topic of civil disobedience is considering, well, what do we do if we're asked to sin? Uh, what if we're asked to do something that's not a sin? And what if the realm of government intrudes on the realm of, of the church? You know, how do we make decisions in that? So the first one is, you know, what, what if we're asked to sin? What if the government asks you to sin or commands you to sin? What do you do? You, you don't do it, which, you know, it's, it's way easier said than done. You know, somebody recommended this, a movie to me called A Hidden Life and it's about this uh, Romanian farmer during the time of when the, the Nazi regime was formed and there were Nazi soldiers that were coming in and recruiting people to, you know, swear their allegiance to Hitler and there's this Romanian farmer who's just, I, I can't do that with a clear conscience and it's, it's based on a true story but it, and it, it's called a hidden life because you know a lot of these people were never really known for doing this. You know they they lost their families, they were stripped from their homes, they were placed in concentration camps for years and years, and they came to the day of their execution and they just they wouldn't swear allegiance to Hitler. Anything and that in that case that's a lot harder. You know it's not just hey we we get the 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 right answer is you don't sin, but then you think, man, I'm gonna lose my wife, I'm gonna lose my, my children, you know, they could starve. Everybody in the town's gonna misunderstand them. Uh, this is gonna have a lot of really painful repercussions. You know, you, you have to have uh, some conviction to live these things out in a situation like that. You see this In Scripture, you know, in Paul and Peter, they were commanded to not preach about Jesus, but they recognize it would be a sin to not preach about Jesus. It would be a sin to stop evangelizing people, so they, you know, respond to those telling them to stop. You know, we must obey God rather than man. So You you guys got to come to some determination on what you think about it, but we can't stop doing this. But you see, they weren't trying to be you know, offensive to Roman officials that were telling them to stop doing that. Say, well, we get it's your job to come to some determination on this, but we, like, we, ha- we have to obey God and we have to make you know, repentance and forgiveness of sins in Christ known to people. We can't not do that. So the second one, I brought up the second question. I was like, well, what if we're asked to do something that isn't a sin necessarily I think you know s- some of the social distancing guidelines could fall in this it's like you know set up your chairs like this like well is it is it a sin to move two chairs six feet apart and eh, not necessarily it's like well is it a sin to wear a mask Yeah, it's super awkward you don't like it but it's not necessarily a a sin to do it but then at the same time you have people that are kind of battling in their conscience because they're saying, well, who who's in charge here? Like if I, if I do this, who am I communicating who's in charge? And you have other people. You remember I talked about this concept where you can have two, two sinful responses and three right responses. So you can have a sinful response of you have a bad attitude towards the government. And Scripture says you're to be, put yourself in an attitude of submission to them. You can have a bad attitude towards you know how how the church is leading in that these are sinful responses you could have but now you could also have three righteous responses one one could be you're just it, your conscience is telling you that you're you should genuinely be concerned about your your health your uh going through some sort of treatment you don't want to get sick and so you're like well I think the best thing to do is for me is to wear the mask you know somebody else out of clear conscience before they they just want to they know that God has commanded them to be subject to the government and so they're like you know I don't like doing this but I'm going to do it to, to honor the Lord and they're honoring the Lord you have somebody else that says you know the the government doesn't can't boss the church around and I want to bear testimony that uh, they, they don't have uh, any rain on what goes o- on in here, so I'm, I'm not going to wear the mask. All three of those responses are are right, but uh, none of them can be done with uh, an attitude of rebellion. So it comes down to, to attitude and trying to figure out, well, how do you prefer others? Uh, how do you live at, at peace with all men, whether it be, you know, county officials over you, people in your neighborhood, people in your congregation. And you're going to have to give up some things to be able to live at peace with one another. Uh, you're also going to have to think through, well, what, what is a faithful witness going to look like, you know, at this moment in this, in this time as well? And that's exactly what the, the, the two categories we get, you know, living at peace with one another and thinking about our witness. Uh, that's what we get in Scripture, and you know Romans 13 is in a, se- in a section in Romans that is the whole section is Romans 12 through 14, and that the focus of that section in Romans 12 is based on living peaceably with all. And it says in Romans 12:14 and following, "Bless those who persecute you; bless and do not curse them." I and mean, that, that's tough when it's like, well, it's only this many days to slow the curve and then you're like a year into the thing. <laughs> like you, you, do, you, you don't want to bless them necessarily unless, you know, the Lord has really sanctified your heart in that, in that particular moment. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. So he said, there's going to be people that are rejoicing, there's going to be people that's weeping, you're to live in, in harmony with them. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, never be wise in your own sight. You know, it's like, hey, I, I read some studies on this sort of thing, you know, I'm not a scientist, don't have a degree in this. Well, I mean, maybe I do, I've done enough Google searches. And so you can trust my scientific research on this and how I'm so right, at least in, in my own eyes. Never be wise in your own sight or pay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And words to live by, you know, how do you do what's honorable in the sight of all? And that's a lot of people, you know, all. Uh, and if possible... Okay, you hear those are if possible. It's not always going to be possible, but if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Say you're not trying to be the person who's drawn attention to yourself. You're not trying to to rock the boat. You're not you're not hoping to be the I told you so person a few months down the road. How do how do I live peaceably with all? How do you live peaceably with? Uh, believers with unbelievers how do you live peaceably uh, under a a a government that's doing ungodly things how do you live peaceably you know Romans 14 it's you know these conscience issues where you have one believer that thinks uh, you you can you can eat the meat sacrificed to an idol another one doesn't but you guys also have a witness before other people that's watching you and if you start quibbling over this sort of thing they're like oh wait we know who the Christians don't have any peace with one another. They don't have a Christ that came to establish peace between them or reconcile anybody to anybody. Just look at all the infighting that's going on there. Uh, we have better things like Fox News and the Daily Wire. You know, Why do we need those Christians? Sorry to mock the Daily Wire to some of you. But... <laughs> uh, the, the other wisdom category, besides thinking through peace, you're, you know, we're thinking through you know, our witness as well. I think we see this in First Peter 2, 11 to 12. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. So you think, you're, you're the people who are passing through this life. And this is important for you to think about. It says, To abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. You think about that, you, we probably think through some of these things more in terms like, you know, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to uh, influence the government, which wages war against all peoples everywhere. But he's saying that the war is very different than, you know, what you're getting in your newsfeed, he says, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. He says that's, when you think about these ideas of submission under a, an ungodly government, uh, the thing you need to abstain from is the passions of the flesh. You know these desires to like a lust for comfort. And you see, they're intruding on it, but uh, you're worshiping it, or you your your patriotism has gone beyond you know what is biblical, and you see yourself more as American than Christian. He says, it's the passions in your flesh which are waging war against your soul. It's not all that stuff that's outside of you, it's what's inside of you, and that's where your focus needs to be. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So this, this is what's at stake in all of this. It's your conduct before the Gentiles so that w- when they do speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So you see, what they're seeing is, is your good deeds. It doesn't say, you know, they're, they're hearing your sound, logical worldview arguments. But they're, they're seeing that uh, this Christ is living and he's alive, he's alive in these people. It's, it shows up more in our conduct than our conversation. But it shouldn't be to the neglect of our speaking about what is just and right As well. So if we're asked to do something that you know it isn't necessarily a sin, we have to think through these ideas of well, how do I live at peace with all men? How do I think of you know my my witness in this situation? You know, what what does my conduct look like as I live through this? Well, what if the realm of the government intrudes on the realm of the church? Now, what if the government seeks to do more than just protect the lives of worshipers, but to modify if they worship, uh, when they worship, or how they worship? Well, we have to to be able to think, well, what what things belong to Caesar and what things belong to God? I think, well, to to Caesar, uh, taxes belong to him. Scripture says respect, honor belongs to him. Uh, Even if he's not respectable or honorable, you're still demonstrating that anyways. But there's certain things that don't belong to Caesar, like if we worship, doesn't belong to him. Uh, When we worship, doesn't belong in the civil sphere or even uh, how we worship. But now you you can probably see here, we kind of enter into this grayish area and the we, we own a building in Caesar's land as a title deed that's, you know, registered with the government, and they have building codes, you know, occupancy load 475. Now, when it comes to we have a, a building and uh, that's under Caesar's jurisdiction, you know, we give them those things. We show respect and honor through building codes and stuff uh, as... Uh, irksome as some of them might, might seem to you. We're like, well, how do we live at peace with all, you know, we're, we don't want to be known for being the rebellious people. You know, we want to pay our taxes, show honor. But then what, what if, you know, government intrudes and wants to start playing with God's building, which I'm not talking about the structure we're in, but God's people. So he says, well, this is, this is how you should think about the phrase, love your neighbor, uh, the vice president will define for you the application of love your neighbor. You know, in that case, we're like, wait a second, I don't think. Uh, you know, and a lot of people, they're, just, they're like, hey, that's a Bible phrase, she must be right. You know, that's as far as their discernment goes. It's like, yeah, you know, if, if you love your neighbor, you know, you'll, you'll get vaccinated and you'll protect them from dying and your grandmother will live longer. Well, that, I mean, that sounds sweet. And you, I mean, you care about other people. You care about grandma. But is that how God wants you to understand loving your neighbor? It, it could it could look that way. I mean, obviously, you know, you if you know that you're infectious or something, you don't want to infect other people. But do you love, do, does the church love their, their neighbors when they stop meeting? Uh, when they stop being, you know, a city on a hill, they say, well, basically what we were being told is if, if you put your light under a bushel, you'll be loving your neighbor. That's what we were really hearing. And we have to be able to think, you know, uh, civil authorities don't, don't teach us how to understand or uh, apply the Bible. Uh, that's something that God alone does. He informs our doctrine. He informs our practice. But when it comes to the practice of a local church, you know, we talked about that, that can vary from one local church to another, you know, and there's elders that are overseeing that. And I think we definitely saw that throughout 2020. You know, different churches did different things with chairs and hand sanitizer and you know whatnot. But you know, none of us could say, "Well, we're the only ones that are doing it right," or you know, the these people that we found on the internet are the standard bearers of how every other church on the planet should be doing this in this moment. It's like, you know, there was freedom to work through different things in different ways uh, during that time. You know, not, not every response was just black and white. It was one of those things that's like, well, there's three right things we could do, but what's gonna be the best for, you know, this congregation and this moment and this place right now. So doctrine and practice of the church, it belongs to God alone, never to civil government, and, you know, when we think about that, you know, the government mandates that we saw, the social distancing guidelines, uh, all, all, all of them were illegitimate intrusions on the church, to be sure. But even within that, each local church has to think through, well, what is peace going to look like in this situation? And what is a witness going to look like in our locality? It's going to be different if you have uh, legislators in your church. So I talked to you know, throughout all of this, I, I talked to brothers all over the place. You know, one of them being in D.C. You know, he's thinking through different things because uh, in his congregation he had people who were legislators that were writing some of these laws. So some things are going to look different in that case. He, he's going to have to preach and instruct on different things, lead people in a, in a way that that's going to look different than you know uh, other places. You know, other churches maybe they're right next to a government office and they have people that are working in that office and you know if they're not wearing a mask in their congregation then they they just immediately lose their job which is just next door to the church building Uh, are you going to tell them you know you you can't do this because you're compromising if you wear a mask it's not you know you're going to have to sensitively you know work through those sort of issues and help people and you're going to long suffering involves suffering long you know and and that's exactly what it feels like, but what if you're a small congregation in the woods that people mistake for a condo? <laughs> you know th- things are a little bit different there, yeah you know, you're not having to think through some of those other things, it's like you know people don't even know what we're doing here, why people are even in the parking lot. <laughs> Uh, how, how do you shepherd people who have legitimate health, health concerns? Uh, will it benefit the whole congregation if we move faster or slower? Uh, what, what decisions will most wisely help to, to maintain peace with everyone? Uh, how do we move forward with a witness that demonstrates thoughtfulness rather than recklessness? How do we prepare people to give a reason for the, the hope that is in them? Should anybody ask, why are you guys doing this? What are the compromises that we absolutely can't make, and what are the compromises of some preferences that we might have that we should consider for the sake of unity among the brotherhood? Uh, what Bible teaching needs to take place before making the next development so that people are biblically informed and they're, they're confident that they're following the Lord in this? Uh, what are other faithful churches doing, and what can we learn from them? Uh, what, what do you do with over 20 hours of YouTube videos that people think you need to watch in your inbox that week? You think about that in the, the age in which we live in, you know, the, the information age, some call it. You know, it's, there's the illusion of the information age that you know, we, we think we have the, the right to know something now and that we're definitely right after a few podcasts or a blog in it because the guy sounded really confident. We need to learn to, be, to just wait. Learn to wake, wait learning something, to hear other sides. We also need to learn to be local. You know, what, what's going on in the, the congregation where God has act, actually placed me? You know, how, how is my leadership thinking through this, and how how can I support them and be a, a help to them or, you know, a, other believers that are thinking this through? You know, maybe I actually have something to learn from them, and I'm not just the teacher in every occasion. Now, I'm not telling you to just abandon all blogs and podcasts. They're certainly a, a, a blessing, and they have their place, but they, they can't replace the local church. You know, they can't, they can't replace where God has providentially actually placed you as a, a member of a body. You know, the, you know the, the arm can't say to the leg, you know, I, I have no need of you because I have podcast. <laughs> we reckon we want to recognize where God has providentially actually placed us. Like, we, we live here and not there. And yes, there are issues that are going on out there, but are they, are they actually going on in your life? And I think, you know, issues like, well, look at all of these things going on in the public schools. Uh, you know, uh, in LA County or somewhere else and say well are you a part of a public school where those things are going on and has God providentially placed you in a place where you could be a witness for him or not and if that's the case how much time do you need to spend knowing about that thing talking about that thing if you really have nothing to do with it and you're not going to do anything in that sort of setting and just because you you hear about these things while you're inside of your house reading or listening to something, it doesn't mean that it's actually going on in your backyard. And one of, one of the dangers of the internet is that you can, you can become somebody, like you sound informed, you sound concerned, you, you sound like you're involved in doing good in the world, but you're, you're really actually becoming more useless to the kingdom of God You've, you're becoming a busybody. There's a lot of things that you hear about, but you're not doing anything about. Uh, you're increasing in things that you're talking about, but to the detriment of your walk with the Lord. So you want to be aware about, you know, just knowing about a lot of things because they're interesting. You know, just knowing about the next theological debate, knowing what this guy or that guy is doing when you really have little to do with it and it's not helping you to grow in godliness. It just has the appearance of godliness, but it it lacks the power of it. You get what I'm saying with that? Like it looks godly to know about a lot of these things, but when our lives aren't being changed and we're not becoming more faithful, more holy where God has placed us, we're denying that that right theology has any power to do anything in our lives, It's, we want to be aware of unwittingly becoming busy around God's work, but not busy at God's work. The things that he's at, he's actually put in front of you. You know, we can see all this, like somebody needs to do something about this thing in this place or that place. And certainly, uh, they do. The church that is there needs to, to rise up to the occasion and consider how to be faithful there. But I also have to recognize, you know, I'm here and not there. I think this is a truth that's taught in Ecclesiastes 7.16. It says, do not be excessively righteous and do not be overly wise. Why should you make yourself desolate? So you can be appearing, you know, very righteous. You can be appearing very wise and spend a lot of time sorting out a lot of things. But you're really just becoming an island to yourself. you're not really connected to the people that you actually live your life around. I wanted to talk about Ecclesiastes 8 a bit. Let's turn there. We won't be able to spend as, as much time as I would like. And if we run out of time, the point that I want to make is: don't put your hope in the government. <laughs> That's the point I want to make. Anyway, we see that here, in Ecclesiastes eight: Who is like the wise man, and who knows the interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom illumines his face and causes his stern face to beam. I say, keep the command of the king because of the sworn oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to go from his presence. Do not stand in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. Anything about that 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 phrase, "Do not stand in an evil matter," could it, it can also be translated, "Do not stand against an evil matter." He's saying you can go to the king and you can confront him, but it's worthless because he's going to do whatever he's going to do anyways, whether you stand there and say something to him or not. He says, since the word of the king is powerful, who will say to him, "What are you doing?" He who keeps a royal command experiences no evil thing for a wise heart knows the proper time and custom. For there is a proper time and custom for every matter though a man's trouble is multiplied upon him. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? There is no man who has power to restrain the wind with the wind. You like that phrase? Yeah, it's like two windbags just going at it with one another. It's like, maybe one can like huff and puff and blow the, the other one down. It says, and there is none who has power over the day of death. And there is no discharge in the time of war and wickedness will not provide escape to its masters. All this I have seen and given my heart to every work that has been done under the sun, wherein a man has power over another man to his calamity. So then I have seen the wicked buried those who used to go in and out from the holy place and they are soon forgotten in the city where they did thus. This too is vanity because the sentence against an evil work is not executed quickly. Therefore, the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Although a a sinner does evil a hundred times and may prolong his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly. But it will not be well for the wicked man, and he will not prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear God openly. There is vanity which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the works of the wicked. On the other hand, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the works of the righteous. I say that this too is vanity. So I laud gladness, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry and this will join with him in his labor throughout the days of his life which God has given him under the sun when I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the endeavor which has been done on the earth even though no one never sees sleep with his eyes day or night and I saw every work of God I concluded that man cannot find out the work which has been done under the sun, even though man should seek laboriously. He will not find it out. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot find it out. You know, that last phrase there, you could uh, like put a sticky note on your computer over the blog post or the podcast thing. Even though a man should seek laboriously, he will not find it out. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot find it out within all of this you see the tension of uh, the the wicked and the righteous and the righteous not being able to do anything about the wicked and the wicked prolonging their days and the days of the righteous being reduced uh, and evil uh, growing greater and greater it's like well how do you Respond to this, you know, First says, well, be, beware of provoking a governing authority because he's still going to do whatever he's going to do, but now you're just in the way of that. But also, it's like, well, what is the hope in all of this? Well, it's one of the greatest preachers of all time. His name is Death. He's the reminder that you're not in control. How do you know you're not in control? Can you control death? It's like, No. Death is the great equalizer of all men. Everybody has to go to the grave. Uh, Death is also the great preacher that says, you can't manipulate things. You're not in control and you can't manipulate things. How do you know? You're going to die. Death reminds you you're not in control. You can't manipulate things. So how do you respond to tyranny, calamity, a sentence against evil not being executed quickly, increasing lawlessness and evil men prolonging their days through it all? Well, you recognize that those people and the governments and the wicked and the righteous all are passing away. And you see here in Solomon and, you know, this Holy Spirit-inspired wisdom, he doesn't say, well, what you need is to be more politically involved. If you were just more involved in the political sphere, it would change things. But instead, he just says, I laud gladness. He says, I commend to you being glad. (laughs) uh which you know isn't you know a hallmark of people who are like very politically charged he says there there's nothing good for a man of the, the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry and to to find some joy in those things amidst all the labor that he has in this life uh this is very different than you know despairing over the latest news you know instead it's like you know enjoy what you can while you can. Uh, God's given you some, you you got a washing machine, go wash your clothes, put on some clean clothes. That's a paraphrase of something else in Ecclesiastes. But (laughs) it's like, you know, just wear some clean clothes, you know, have some good food. Uh, Uh, Enjoy drink, you know, enjoy things within the labor that God has given you to do. Uh, you, You can't know everything, you can't figure out everything and you also don't know anybody who can (laughs) this is a good reminder for us to not put our focus and hope in the government you know our our focus should be on Christ our hope is in Christ but that this is super difficult to discern in our heart because I mean the person who's hoping in government would never say that and if you told them, well are you hoping in government they're like no, but I really think somebody should do something about this. And if we just had a different president, then everything would be different. And the, the property taxes, if they could change that too, then that would just fix everything. So that's where their hope is. Their hope isn't the thing that they talk about the most. You know, their hope is when they talk about a problem, it's like, well, the problem's here and the solution's in the same place. Problem's in the government, solution's in the same place. You know, if we could just fix government, everything would be better. That's how your hope is actually expressed. And it's it's a subtle error to be sure, but we want to guard our hearts to make sure that where our focus is on Christ. Our hope is in Christ. And thinking about, you know, it, our hope isn't, well, maybe someday like I'll get to be like John the Baptist and I'll stand before Herod and, you know, I'll give him the what for. Or maybe I'll have one of those opportunities like Paul did or like Daniel. Right. Those guys are few and far between, but they were all wise men that were prepared for that moment and they weren't trying to be that guy. Uh, God in his providence placed them there. He had prepared them for that moment and may, maybe one of you is one of those wise people that God is preparing and you'll, you'll be in that circumstance and the, the Holy Spirit is with you and give you the wisdom that you need and what to speak on that day, but you don't have to fantasize about it. In anticipation that it might happen, we want to seek to be faithful where we're at, in the place that we're at, in the time in which we live, and even being a faithful witness and having that opportunity doesn't doesn't guarantee certain desired results, right? You know, for for John the Baptist, it it, it didn't in a way make things go better for him. You know, on this earth, it did go better in that he got to finally leave this earth and be with the lord but it doesn't guarantee that you know a nation will be transformed because there's a righteous witness before them the rise and fall of nations are never dependent on the work of the church you know you hear a lot of people that say well all of this stuff is happening in in our nation because of the church it's the church's fault and so you know, I imagine they're like getting out a whip and they're whipping us. and It's like, it's all you guys' fault that all this stuff has gone haywire in our nation. You guys just need to be more righteous and to start living out your righteousness and fix everything. You know, that's a miserable me- message and, you know, nobody should talk to, to Christ bride like that. You know, it, it's Christ who has uh, ordained the rising and falling of nations. Uh, the church is never to blame for the trajectory of history. Uh, we, we don't make things go south and we can't make them go north either. Uh, we're just called to be faithful. You know, you think about uh, other preachers of righteousness like Noah. You know, God didn't say, well, if, if you can preach the message right, it'll change everything and a whole bunch of people won't drown. It's like, no, it, it couldn't have been any different during that time. You know, only eight people could have been saved in that ark. Or what if you live like during the time of like Jeremiah? You know, say, well, Jeremiah, you wouldn't be the weeping prophet if you would just like change your message and have, you know, more influence over Israel and Judah and and Babylon and everybody else. It's like, no, it it, it could only be the way that it was. And so our goal is to be faithful. You know, what does it look like to be a a faithful Christian who meets at a church in Meadow Vista and Placer County and to be a, a city set on a hill. So our, our focus, while it's wise to know things about politics and whatnot, you know, it's not our focus, it's not our hope. We I mean, talked about last week, it's right to be indignant about unrighteousness going on in the world, but it's wrong to put our focus out there on the world. It, it should make us more focused on the church, which is the city set on the hill, which is the light which is shining in the world. Uh, We want to understand the church better. We want to be a a more faithful church member. And I'll end with these words from 1 Thessalonians 4, 10 to 12. And then I got to go drive up to Alta because I'm preaching on the main service at the Baptist church there. So if I walk away from you really fast, it's not because I don't want to hear your question. I just have to go. So I'll close with reading this text in 1 Thessalonians 4. But we urge you brothers to excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will walk properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord we pray that you help us to to live the quiet lives that you've called us to to be faithful to the business that is actually going on around us and to work with our hands so that we would have a a proper witness towards outsiders, that we would not be in need, but there would be an expression of generous love and grace among your people that would be a testimony to the lost around us. Pray that you would give us a, a clearer understanding of how you would have us to think about church and state issues, civil disobedience, these sort of things, that we do so with a a heart of submission and attitude that honors you with the discernment that would cause others to ask about the hope that is in us. pray that you help us to discern our own hearts and where our hope truly is at any given moment, and that you would help us above all to remember Jesus Christ who is risen from the dead, who is victor over the fall, victor over the curse, victor over death, and that he will place everything in subjection to himself, by himself, help us to have our hope in him and him alone, and to be a a sanctifying reminder of that to one another until the day that you come, and we pray that you come quickly, amen.